This episode of Hodinkee Radio is proudly brought to you by Hodinkee Insurance. It's the fastest, easiest way to insure the watches you love. Get your quote now at hodinkee.com slash insurance. Hey, it's me, James Stacey, and today we're talking about power reserves as I've noticed a lot of comments denigrating movements with the usual 40-ish hours of maximum reserve now that several brands offer bigger numbers, 70, 80 hours, sometimes more. But for an everyday watch, or even a watch you might not be wearing that often, does it even matter? Isn't 40 hours way more than enough for an automatic movement? When does a longer power reserve actually benefit you, the wearer? I have my own opinions, but I asked Jack and Danny to join me to help balance out the perspective. So grab your 7S26 Seiko and give it a good shake and bake. Because who knows, maybe it'll even last the whole episode. Jack, Danny, you guys feeling wound up and uh, fully energized? <laughs> I'm mid-wind. Mid-wind, yeah, I feel that <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> I don't have a personal power reserve indicator, so God knows where I'm at. I could I could stop in five minutes. I could stop in two days. Mine is mine is the number of coffee cups that slowly surround me. So what do you guys think? It's kind of an interesting topic because it's something that I, I, I just feel like I'm missing. I'm missing the boat on a little bit. Um, when it comes to something like a sports watch, I've never once thought about how long the power reserve is. Like if the watch doesn't wind effectively enough, I guess it could stop when I'm sleeping or sitting really still at my desk all day. I've had that with like, a Seiko monster that probably needs a service. But otherwise, like 40 hours is plenty. If I take it off at night, we're talking best case, eight or nine hours before I put it on again. Where do you guys land on this? Let's let's start with uh, casual watches because I think it changes entirely if we start talking about higher end or dressier pieces, things like that. I mean, I absolutely never really thought about it ever uh, because my understanding before I was even knowledgeable about watches to begin with and just wearing automatic watches as sort of a you know a casual guy as a, as it were i i understood the the concept of a perpetual motion and and how there is not the actual need to wind a watch so it, the the whole notion of power reserve was something that i learned as i learned more about watches and i think for for me when you have a long power reserve a 72 hour power reserve an 80 hour power reserve yeah it's great it's very cool to be able to tell somebody this is what everyone always says. You can take your watch off on a Friday and pick it back up on a Monday or whatever, like, the, you know, the, the saying is now. But mm-hmm. I very rarely am taking a watch off on a Friday and putting that same watch back on on a Monday. Um, so it just never really has affected me in any meaningful way. And how about you, Jack? Where do you land on this? There's so many places where the conversation could start. I mean, one place that the conversation could start is talking about the situation of a person who has multiple watches and who's you know, quote unquote, an enthusiast, or at least verging on an enthusiast, and somebody who really does just wear one watch um, every day, um, and maybe they have a second watch that they wear on the weekends. And, and, you know, in a situation like that, like, I mean, I personally don't wear the same watch every day, take it off on a Friday and put it back on on a Monday, you know, take it off with relief on a Friday, you know, in the way that I take off my suit, which I never wore anyway, and then put it back on. (laughs) Loosen the tie. (laughs) Loosen the tie. Take off the watch. And then Monday, you know, you get up, you put on your suit, and you look empty-eyed into the mirror, seeing the whole week and indeed your your whole life stretch out ahead of you. And you put on your watch, and your watch is still running as if it's been just waiting for the moment when you have to shackle yourself to uh, time again. Yeah, I guess in a situation like that, sure, having a watch that you, you know, that will run for a couple of days without without it being on your wrist is cool. Practically speaking, if you have more than one watch, chances are 
you know, you know, I mean, if you have dozens, you know, the way that some of the people on this call might, you, you take off a watch, you might not, you might not wear it for, um, you know, a month or two months, um, or, or you might be, you know, going through a run with a particular watch where you're just wearing it every day because it's floating your boat, you know, particularly well. And in both cases, it doesn't really matter what the power reserve of the watch is because if you're not wearing it on a regular basis and it's going to be two months, three months before you pick it up again, who cares what the power reserve is? Right. And if you're wearing it every day, especially if it's an automatic, who cares what the power reserve is because you're wearing it every day. And if the automatic winding system's in good nick, it's just going to, you know, it's it's going to stay wound. Yeah. Um, I guess you could argue that if you had a hand-wound watch you would need to wind it slightly less often if it had a longer power reserve but and i, I that's a complaint i absolutely get right well but like most every i mean most everyday wear watches you know most watches hand-wound watches are going to wind pretty much first thing in the morning anyway um you know because presumably you like it's like a little ritual sort of thing yeah pick yeah. it up give it, it a few winds put it on and i guess if you have a power reserve then it's even less of an issue because it's not like it's going to stop and you're going to be surprised like right. you might with say an old dress watch or something like that but yeah, it, it's a funny thing because I, I the thing that I compare it to is kind of like the water resistance thing. Like you, there's a certain point where all the water resistance is enough. Right. You know, like 200 is way more than any of us need, right? I, I mean, maybe maybe there's one, two people in the audience uh, that, that are really high-end tech divers that, that you could make the claim to need more. But I do wonder how much of this is because the the sort of landscape of movements have changed in the last decade, right? Because you have... Um, Etta, Etta can almost be seen, like, because of Swatch, Etta can almost be seen in two different verticals. The stuff that they give to Swatch brands, which now runs at a lower rate. So, uh, Jack, you can explain this better than me, but conceivably it's going to be a less precise watch um, over over the duration of its power reserve. But the power reserve is longer because it's using less power. Well, the, the specific case you're, you're, you're thinking of, I think, is the Powermatic 80, right? Which is a... Uh... Right, the ones where they've tuned them down from 4 hertz. Right, so you take an ADA twenty eight twenty four, which runs at twenty eight thousand eight hundred VPH, and you, you you tune it down to twenty one six, and you've got an eighty hour power reserve. Um, there may be other things going on in there as I well. I think it's a larger uh, spring well, as well. Larger, yeah, larger mainspring. But you know, the, 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 all other things being equal, the frequency of a watch correlates uh, pretty directly with its rate stability. Except, you know, all things are never equal. You know, the, the standard for many years has been, let's call it 38 hours, right? And we see that in Etta, in, in the Etta's that are sold to all sorts of companies and Salidas that are sold to all sorts of companies. And then in the last few years, we've seen in-house movements from Kinesi Tudor. We've seen Le Jupere. We've seen uh, the Powermatic stuff and the CO7 stuff extend that 60, 70, 80 hours. And I, I, I do kind of wonder if... Hopefully people will get into the comments because I don't want to discredit a commenter whose power reserve actually matters to the way that they appreciate their watch. Right. Um, it's just like it's 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 like so it, it is in there with water resistance. Like if I see a watch that has a certain amount of water resistance and a screw down crown, I stop thinking about it. And I think the only stuff where where I find the difference is if you have a watch that can't be hand, uh, hand wound. So like a 7S26 Seiko, where you got to sh shake them or on a, a vintage watch that's hand-wound, and I just simply have no idea when it's going to stop. Right. Right? So you kind of absentmindedly give it a few wines every now and then when you look down at it, which is kind of a, a pleasurable thing as well. Do you think it's fair to draw a line between movements that have become commoditized under $1,000 and then pointing towards these, these better, quote-unquote, better movements, higher-spec movements, half-in-house, mostly-in-house movements, um, kind of pushing towards one of the kind of prestige plays in high-end watchmaking where you have a huge power reserve? 
you think that that it's a, it's kind of a, a downswell of marketing how many airbags a car has that sort of thing <laughs> but that used to be a thing right first airbag sure. was in an s class i mean i do I, I do wonder who who it's who it's for like this this question always comes up for me is like who what buyer what consumer is it for and mm-hmm. it's the whole idea of like when i look down at my, any of my watches vintage watch in particular and let's say it's running fast, running slow, and I think potentially the power reserve's not great, it's not keeping good time, or it's stopped, I generally just shrug and go, automatic watches. You know, like this is kind of like the charm of them. They're not going to be the most accurate things in the world. I'll wind it up. Yeah. I'll shake it up. It's fine. So I wonder if if it's people who are used to uh, quartz movements, which obviously like power reserve is as long as the battery lasts just go yeah and because I, i've had moments where i've had or even eco drives right? sure i've had an old timex that i pulled out of a drawer after a year and i i marvel i'm like oh whoa that's keeping great time still it's just been sitting in this drawer you know it's crazy the thing that hits me is simply that this is these are comments on hodinky articles for kind of niche watches yeah. you know I, I covered that vertex which is an expensive micro brand that's how i would call them but it's a beautifully made watch but you're not paying that money for a movement kind of right. like you aren't with a bramon right Braemont will do some stuff to the movement. Maybe they'll protect it from magnetism or shock or depending on the watch. This would be one thing if my if my dad was worried about or, or, or a friend of mine who doesn't know watches was really worried about the power reserve. This is something that's coming up like in in like knowledgeable watch conversations on niche watches. So it must mean something, you know, and, and I feel like I'm just missing it. Well, you know, this is something that came up in, in the article that we published not that long ago on the helium escape valve, like, mm. and, and this relates to water resistance as well. Like nobody needs 200 meters water resistance. And un, I mean, unless arguably they're, you know, actively air diving or, or technical di- or breathing technical gas mix- mixtures, but it's nice to have the spec. Mm. And, uh, you know, while you were talking about cars, I was thinking about the megapixel wars that camera manufacturers went through, you know, in like the early to and, mid-2000s. And still are. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I think I feel like the megapixel wars are probably a lot more relevant for um, commercial than consumer photography. I mean, sure, if you're going to blow something up, you could say you're going to take a picture and you want to blow it up to the size of a billboard, then yeah, you need a phase one. But you know, the average consumer, you know, certainly doesn't need um, a sensor with that high a pixel density. And um, as far as power reserve is concerned, you know, the standard for wristwatches for decades and decades and decades was 36 to 40 hours. You know, everybody just kind of lived with it. And then, you know, self-winding watches started to really proliferate after the Second World War and it became even less important. I mean, it was possible to have watches, wristwatches with very long power reserves, you know, earlier on than, you know, than people might suspect. I mean, Cartier did an eight-day tank uh, starting in 1931, I believe. And, and um, is, in, so, But that's a tank like literally that has hours and minutes on it? Yep. Maybe small seconds? Yeah, it's... Um, because like I could like I, I've I've talked to people who go well you want a big power reserve if there's a complication you don't want to have to reset a moon phase uh, a QP well that's a point I do I do wonder Jack do you know the difference like how long the power reserve on a thirty five seventy speedy would be with or without the chronograph running because it's not like half the chronograph doesn't eat up that much um, power to my understanding no I mean it's the the, the chronograph is a particularly um, funny situation because what's actually happening is you get the same number of turns out of the mainspring barrel, you know, kind of no matter what, because that's just the way the movement is constructed. Uh, what actually happens is that switching on the chronograph adds extra friction. Some drag into the system. Yeah. So what will happen is the watch will stop sooner if the chronograph is left running constantly. But turning the chronograph on and then turning it off, just using it the way you would normally use a chronograph, doesn't affect the power reserve. Yeah, that makes sense to me uh, in, in, in my very, you know, 
stupid engine non-engineering brain <laughs> i just think you know just jumping just jumping back uh you know a little bit i mean the the whole idea of like a high-end watch like the cartier uh eight-day tank you know again from this from the 1930s or later you know the paddock 10-day tourbillon it's great to have the spec right like everybody likes the spec and you know Absolutely. all other things being equal we would like our watches you know to have the spec the, the long power reserve on a hand-wound watch I guess it does different things for you than a long power reserve on an automatic watch. But, you know, purely from a sort of like rate stability, accuracy and practicality and use perspective, I don't know how much more, practically speaking, um, you get out of a 70 hour spec than a 40 hour spec. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I'm I'm just curious because it's something that feels new. And, and I think it might just be a response to, like I said earlier, how the sort of landscape around movements has changed. Right. Um, where you have brands that need to differentiate themselves. like Consider like an Oris, right? A brand that's been using Eta and Salita for years to a very high effect. And to come out with the 400, they probably sat at a whiteboard. I'm just going to guess. They sat at a whiteboard and they said, how do we make this something that somebody would pay more for? Some of these numbers have to be higher. And five days is a lot, is a lot higher. Yeah. You want to feel like if, you know, if you're paying more for a quote unquote in-house movement or a semi-in-house-ish, semi-in-house-ish movement like the Kinesi calibers mm-hmm. um, that uh, Tudor uses and that Breitling uses sometimes, uh, then yeah, I mean, it, it justifies uh, a, a higher price is justifiable in the consumer mind if there's a better spec. Yeah. Right. Yeah. More money, more spec. Yeah. Just the fact of being in-house kind of doesn't do it for you anymore. Um, it's like in-house and then what? Jackie, in our notes, you put a, a whole handful of watches that have like really remarkable long power reserves. Yeah, yeah. And and I think this is I think this helps illustrate a little bit of the point where there's a certain there's a prestige, whether it's needed or not, almost doesn't matter because you know, like Ben says, you don't need any of these things. Right. <laughs> right. That's that's the most reductive argument. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because it, it, it defeats itself. But you know, you've got some of these that have seven days plus, uh, and then of course we we get into stuff like uh like the uh, Jacob stuff and the Hublot. Why don't you give us a little rundown on if you really want power reserve, where you can put your bikes? I mean, it gets pretty crazy. The uh, the first long power, ultra long power reserve watch that I can ever remember seeing. Well, two thousand one, the Ulysses Nardan Freak came out. That was a seven day watch, and uh, with a mainspring barrel, that, with a mainspring that filled the entire watch case. The original IWC Big Pilot two thousand two. That was a seven day power reserve, and then the very first time I met. Uh, Jacob at, at his boutique was to see the Quentin Turbion that was in 2007 and that's a 31 day watch same year the Longa 31 comes out also a 31 day watch with Remontor. Um there were eight day pocket watches uh, made but you know in the wristwatch realm there's the there's the well there's the eight day tank which was very rare but you know at the top of the heap is the Hublot La Ferrari which is a watch that I don't personally think is successful aesthetically but <laughs> You know, you, it's barely a watch. No, I mean it's it, it's a it's a collection of springs for your wrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's uh, you know fifty days though. I mean that's a that's um, one of the funny things about watches is that you can take any particular spec and you can fetishize it, right? And it becomes um, it becomes something you pursue you know just for its own sake, right? You know you can fetishize depth ratings, you can fetishize power reserve, anti magnetism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Thinness, right? <laughs> You know, speak, speaking just a, a few hours after Richard Mill decided to go nuts with a, you know, essentially a credit card of a watch for your wrist. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating thing, Jack. Do you remember? Um, I don't think we were in the same meeting together. This would have been before we were working together. But I want to say the LaFerrari, the first version, the MP05, 2014 or 2015 at Basel. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I can't remember uh, precisely, but do you remember being in that meeting when you're like, well, how do you wind that many little tiny, incredibly tight springs? And they go, oh, with an included drill. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was, it was an, uh, I, I, it was like an adapted. Granted, you only have to do it about once every two months, but still, right. <laughs> still that it's, it is, it is a crazy thing. And like, you kind of have to respect them just for trying, I guess, for getting out there and doing it. Yeah. Like, is this something that matters at all to you when you look at a watch? You, let's say if you're spending a thousand dollars on a watch, does the power reserve matter? Because at a grand, you could get a at a twenty twenty four, or you could just squeak your way into a six R thirty five from Seiko, which doesn't keep as good a time. I own many of both, but has a much longer power reserve. I think it's sixty five hours. The Seiko has sixty five hours of power reserve, James. The six R thirty five. Let me just double check. Um, that the one that's in the SPB one four three. I think is, it's actually seventy hours. So twenty one six. Yeah, Jack's right. 70 hours. So not 65, 70. So let's say you've got $1,000 to spend. You could go buy, or we could get a Powermatic okay. 80 in there. So you could go to 80 as well for about 1000 bucks. I think you could you'd maybe a little bit more, <clears throat> but um, around $1,000, $1,500. You could have your pick between an Etta that you know and, and is easy or something like uh, like the Seiko or Powermatic. At that money, does it matter? Or, or it would depend on all the other features of the watch. The moment you asked the question, the power reserve went out the window for me. It just doesn't, it's not, like, I, I'm not even able to to join this hypothetical using power reserve as the reason why I would buy either watch. So that might even answer your question. I, I It's it's not something that is going to sway me either way. I, I, and I think maybe similar to you, I think I'm maybe I'm missing the boat on on what it is that's making power reserve so attractive for a buyer at this price point. And then let's say we push up into a different power reserve. Now now you're spending five five thousand dollars. Maybe it's a tutor, maybe it's a, a brightling. Again, does it make any difference? I'm just I'm wondering what the where the line is for you guys. Like is it at ten or twelve thousand dollars with a with a Rolex? Because I, I genuinely don't know what the <laughs> what the power reserve is on my Explorer two. It's never come up. The new Breitling Super Oceans got dragged uh, a bit in the comments um, for having a low power reserve. But my impression was what they were really getting criticized for was not using uh, a Canisi caliber in mm -hmm. these watches rather than power reserve per se. Cause Which is perceived as a cost cut um, to, the, to, the, to the end audience. Right, right. And, you know, the um, sort of attaching yourself to the power reserve specifically as a, a spec where you feel like you're you're not getting value for your money because you have a watch with a 38-hour power reserve instead of a watch with a 70-hour power reserve. That's a pretty easy thing to latch on to, but I'm not necessarily... I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into figuring out whether a watch is quote-unquote worth it. I mean, it's a highly personal decision. And, you know, the new Super the new super Oceans have um, ceramic bezels. They've got a very, you know, idiosyncratic dial design. I mean, the dial furniture, I haven't seen one in person, but the dial furniture looks really good. The hands look great. The dial markers look great. Mm -hmm. um, there's And there's costs associated with making high-quality dials. There's costs associated with making high-quality hands. So, you know, the spec for those in terms of power reserve might not be the thing that makes you decide that you want one. You might look at it and think to yourself, well, that's a cool watch. And you look closer at it and you, you say to yourself, well, it looks really well made. Again, I haven't handled one, but like from a sort of practical and consumer standpoint, okay, so it's got a 38 power reserve. So it's a little yeah. expensive if the only thing you look at is the movement. Um, if you look at the watch taken as a whole though, uh, it starts to make a little bit more sense. And a 38 hour power reserve by itself, I. Could, I would bet that the number of people who actually walk into a Breitling boutique look at a Super Ocean Automatic and say to themselves, wow, that's a really cool looking watch. I'd love to have one. You know, they're not going to find out that it has a 38 power reserve and say, oh, that's it. It's a, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. I mean, in most cases. 
Yeah, I think in some ways this is like Maven level feedback. People who read every spec and kind of catalog them in their mind, and and this is the beauty of of the of an audience as dialed in, which is why I wanted to have this discussion. It starts to make a lot more sense to me when you start dealing at that price point, just that sub luxury, say uh, four thousand to six thousand dollars, seven thousand dollars, where suddenly every feature of the watch has to be competitive, and you have to like the way it looks. So you start filtering first by the stuff that you think is pretty or, or, or would work on your wrist and is the right size. And then you start to factor like, but this is 40 hours and it's 120 on the Oris and the Oris is $400 less or $800 less. And I think at that point, you've got, you have a group of people that are so educated at what they're, what they're into that they, they have to factor for all these things, even if the power reserve, or in my case, look, I, I like watches with lots of water resistance and I don't use them. Yeah. Like if, if you could guarantee me 50, 50 meters, that would be plenty for any watch I would ever own, right? I mean, I want to throw a wrench in the game because in addition to, to power reserve, where do you all land on power reserve indicators on the dial? Because for me, as someone who doesn't care about the power reserve that my watch has, I know that if, if it was being measured on the dial of my watch, I would have some level of power reserve anxiety. Yeah, me too. It'd be like having another indicator on my phone. Exactly. Like low battery. I do like it on a hand-wound watch, though. Sure. Especially one where it's, it, it comes down to like, in my mind, it's like dates. There's dates that work really well and, and don't bother me, and I almost don't notice them until you need to look and see what date it is. And there's dates that never get out of their own way. And I think it's the same for power reserves. Some of them look really strange. They're kind of in a weird spot on the dial. Maybe they only represent not even 90 degrees of, of travel um, from, from the center of the hand. And then there's others, you know, that are linear or gradients or or and, and do much more fanciful things. And I think at that point you get into um you get into stuff where there's some art to the execution, which I do like. Yeah, I'll tell you a watch that it bothered me on a watch that I otherwise might have purchased, you know, five years, six years ago was the Tudor North Flag. I thought that of the design of that watch, which was quirky and fun and kind of a little bit 70s, a little bit, you know, vintage meets modern, but then there was just this power reserve indicator where the nine uh, numeral should have been. Uh, and it just, it was just something about it. You know, I, I t- we talk about not thinking about power reserve, but if you're going to put it in my face on the dial, then I'm thinking about it in a way that it actually sometimes detracts from my, you know, enjoyment of the watch entirely. I mean, some people love it on uh, the Grand Seikos. It's a, it's a deal breaker for some other people, although it's it's easy to sort of, have just a general dislike of a particular watch or a particular brand and focus on one thing as a sort of ra- quote-unquote rational justification for disliking it. Yeah. I don't know. If I had a watch with a seven-day power reserve, like like the Big Pilot, for instance, you know, or the Long mm-hmm. F31, like I, I want to have a visual. You can't tell what where, where a watch is in its power reserve by looking at it unless there's a power reserve indicator. So, you know, I mean, semi-logically speaking, if I've got a watch with a seven to a th- you know, 30, 31 day power reserve. I want to see that, right? Like that's, that's the, the whole reason I bought the watch was because I was really, you know, excited by and connected to the idea of a long power reserve. So that's number one. The number two consideration is that um, at least in some situations, a power reserve indicator was back in the day, sort of an aid to practical timekeeping um, or to accurate timekeeping. And, you know, this has to do with advances in mainspring technology, but, you know, for a lot of the history of watchmaking, uh, you would have a little too much torque at the beginning of the power reserve and not quite enough at the end of the power reserve. And that would mean that you would get you would start to see rate variations, um, especially towards the end of the power reserve when the when the mainspring was on its last when the barrel was on its last you know rotation or two. 
So you would you would see power reserve indicators on marine chronometers because you want the power curve to be more or less, you know, right in the middle, because that's where that's where you get the most reliable timekeeping. Now with modern mainspring alloys, that almost doesn't matter at all. I mean, the classic way to avoid uh, timing errors as a result of letting a watch run down to the um, you know, last couple of turns of the mainspring barrel is something called a Maltese cross stop works. So basically the watch doesn't keep running when there's not enough power reserve to give you um, good rate stability. It just, it just stops, you know I mean? Which is, it's, it always, that always felt to me like a little bit of a mechanical temper tantrum, right? Like if I can't have absolutely perfect rate stability, I'm not going to run at all, you know, damn it. Shut it down. <laughs> right. Just shut yeah. it down. It's, it's my party. I'll cry exactly when I want to. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our ad break. And anyone who has ever bought themselves a nice watch and then tried to add it to an insurance policy will know just how big a hassle it can be to get your watch insured. You need receipts, an appraisal, a pile of photos, and lots of patience just to get your watch properly protected. Frankly, it sucks, so we decided to make something better. Hodinkee Insurance is the fastest, easiest way to insure the watches you love. Get your quote now at hodinkee.com insurance. We were talking about power reserves, and I think some of them are, are it's, it's, worth, it's worth listing a few that I think are quite successful while we're on the topic. I really like the Nomos way of doing it with, um, with the circle that rotates over the red, and so you get less and less red as, you're, as you lose the power reserve. It's kind of subtle and doesn't require a hand. I also rem- like really enjoyed the, the Jorn option, which does the sort of North Flag thing at 9, but it, it's for, say, 45 degrees above 9 o'clock, so it goes to 10. And it goes down to eight and it's this very symmetrical and it has its own finishing. Um, and, oh, and then the other one uh, that jumps to mind is you guys remember the, um, one of the caliber one, one X's from Oris had a 10 day. Hold on a second guys. Yeah. Just, just, just wait. Hang on. Let's just stand it. <laughs> Okay, we're good. But you had the um, you had the the option from Oris where it was one of the like caliber one fourteens, one fifteens. It was for the Pro Pilot. It had a ten day, and it had this like almost like a cutout in the dial that the 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 power reserve hand kind of sat into. And I thought always, always thought that looked kind of good. I, I to be honest, I, I think now that I look back on, I don't think I've owned many watches that with power reserves. Uh, I'm mostly mostly automatic, and I always find it kind of weird to have the power reserve on an automatic, especially if it's a power reserve on an automatic with a casual maximum power reserve, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I think it probably, it, it feels intuitively like it makes a little bit more sense to have a long, uh, to have a power reserve indicator on a, uh, a hand-wound watch than, than an automatic, you know, just in general. But, you know, again, for me, if it's an automatic watch with, you know, with the, the seven-day power reserve, like the big pilot yeah. watch, um, yeah, I, I definitely want to have the, um, I definitely want to have the power reserve on the dial. I think Breguet does it kind of interestingly too with the classic line where there's a ton happening on those dials and you don't almost don't notice the power reserve indicator. So in some in some cases, I think when we're talking about a certain level of luxury to James point, there are there are, you know, scenarios where I'm I'm not taking a hard line. I'm not I'm not, you know, loving a power reserve indicator, especially if there's there's that much happening. The classic one is an interesting one because those watches um are charmingly weird. In exactly. their dial layout, exactly. They're they're wild things. I think that's a, a like an area of watches that because they have their own aesthetic and it doesn't really reflect deeply like the last ten years of sort of um, mid century uh, taste in watches. 
uh, that they're kind of like quietly sit sit in the background, but they're really they're really kind of cool on wrist. Oh yeah, I mean what those what those do reflect is is Breguet's approach, you know, to dial design and dial layout. And I think it was George Daniels who said that it's very hard to design a watch with a lot of complications that doesn't end up looking like a gas meter. That's a I mean fair point. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm certainly not going to disagree with Mr. Daniels. But you know, to the to the um, sort of relevant point, yeah, if you just if the only complication you have on the dial is a power reserve, it better be like really nicely placed. It you know it better be in good proportion to the size of the dial and the position. Uh, and you know stylistically, it has to sort of go along with the watch and go along with the design of the hands and the dial furniture. Once you start piling on other complications, it it feels a lot less obtrusive. But that's because it's got a lot of company. Yeah, true enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's it's an interesting topic. It's one that I, I hope people get into the comments and try and fill in, like if, if we've missed a, a major usage point for um, a nice long power reserve on like an everyday sports watch or or a fairly casual watch in general. In many ways, I think that this is this is a way where the the watch industry has created a problem for its own audience, where they've they've started to spread out. Um, to, you know, to, to kind of delineate between what uses a, a off-the-shelf movement, what uses an, a pseudo in-house or fully in-house movement, and then the really high-end stuff. And, and because the high-end stuff went into these big numbers, like Jack was talking about, 31 days, 50 days, we start to see that trickle down into, the, into a middle price point, which then starts to challenge where the Eta stuff and, and the Salida stuff has kind of always hung out and offered a good value. Now the value's kind of changed if you're, if you're following those numbers, right? And I th- yeah, and I think that one thing that we haven't really talked about is, um, you know, three to five or six thousand dollars for a watch is a lot. It's a lot of money to spend on something that you don't need, right? It's a ton. Um, I mean, especially in this day and age, but it always has been. I mean, I remember talking to the CEO of a uh, Swiss watch brand years ago, who uh, wanted to remind his team that they were asking people to spend a lot of money on their watches and that, that it had to make sense. He, and he, he looked around the room and said, how many of you have, uh, when was the last time any of you spent $6,000 of your own money on a watch? And, you know, and you, you could have heard a pin drop. So I don't think it's unreasonable for at all for people to want the most spec that they possibly, you know, can get for their money. And if you're a watch enthusiast, that's one of the things you look at, you know, I mean, if it's possible to get a watch with an 80 hour power reserve, um, for significantly less than a watch with a 38 hour or 40 hour power reserve, you know, that's definitely not the only thing for, for, for sure that factors into a decision to buy a watch, but you don't want to feel as if you're getting let down by one of the specs of a watch that you otherwise like either. Yeah. It's a data point, you know, and there's only so many like really easily, um, understood data points when it comes to like how, like, you know, how accurate it is, how deep can you take it? What, um, what, you know, what's the power reserve, what's the rate, that sort of thing. And if they're offering more for the same or less, you can't really blame someone for for having that stick in their mind as as a piece of value, even if, at least for most cases, I, I don't think that it actually offers a tangible benefit to the end wear, especially if you're talking about a watch you either wear all the time or a watch you may only wear every now and then when you pull it out of the case or whatever, depending on your personal kind of outlook on watch enthusiasm. I mean, I guess the field expedient solution to the um, <clears throat> 38 to 40 hour power reserve problem is uh, is putting the watch on a winder. Yeah, that's true. W- winders are, are kind of an, uh, a fun topic. That could be another whole episode, I think. Yeah, that's another whole episode. I've tried them and it just didn't stick. And, and, and it could be how this is how little I care about whether or not I have to wind a watch when I pick it up and put it on. But it's so important to some folks. I, I have my winder across the room. It's just unplugged. It's now just a watch box. 
So that's how much I care. This is another thing where we were talking, I mentioned it very briefly on that, that I had, I've had people say, well, if your watch has a complication that's a pain to set, it's great to have a long power reserve because then you can, yes. you're not maintaining the power reserve every 40 hours or whatever. And then I guess that's the, a, lar- a large component of, of the, the winding set. Obviously, if we're talking an automatic QP or an automatic with a moon phase or something like that, you can leave it on there and, and it will run. I mean, Jack, I have to think that with your, your day date, that you would prefer not to have to set that, you know, every <laughs> that's a good point too. Non, non quick down. set dates, right? Those are those are yeah, a good beast. Thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have to sort of um, frame it to yourself that that's part of the fun, right? Uh, you know, what it for? I mean, the, that, that, that's the great thing about um, using a setting the date and, and day on a non quick set day date. You know, it's like 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 Forrest Gump said, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> or you just you just have to go. Oh well, I'll wear it in three days when the date lines up. <laughs> I'll come back. I'm coming back to that. <laughs> well, look, guys, this has been fun. Uh, it's always super fun to chat over these topics. I think this was a nice nerdy one. And I, I genuinely would love anyone who listened who, who has some input on this. Like, explain to me why power reserve is super important to you or doesn't matter. Or if it's not even a question of what it brings to you once you own the watch, why does it reflect in how you pick a watch? And I'm not asking that, like, with any sort of tone. I just would love to know why. I'm, I'm very curious I'm not a huge movement head unless you get to a certain price point. It just doesn't matter that much to me as long as it runs and I don't notice its accuracy. It's probably fine. But I know that's not how it is for most people. So I would love some more perspectives. Uh, get into the comments if you can on uh, hoodinkey.com. And uh, hey, as always, Jack, Danny, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having And if you're listening and enjoying the show, you know exactly what I'm going to ask. Send it to a friend. Drop it in your favorite watch forum. Put it in a WhatsApp with all your watch crew. And we can all argue uh, friendly like about uh, power reserves and other things. Maybe we'll do winders uh, sometime soon. That could be fun as well. But until then, uh, thanks so much for listening. And we'll chat to you in about a week's time. Mm-hmm.